listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome. It's good to see you. I hope you are doing well. Uh, Happy Palm Sunday. Trying to think of another greeting. I couldn't come up with it. If you got your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8, we're going to continue our series this morning through the gospel according to Matthew. We are on week 10,000 or something like that, and we're only in chapter 8. We're calling this series All Authority because this really is Matthew's whole purpose in writing this book. He is making the point, showing that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, right? That he is the promised Messiah, promised Savior uh, from the Old Testament. This is what he's writing, that he is the one with all authority over every square inch of creation. And remember last week, uh, Matthew writes his gospel, or we said this last week, that he, he structures the contents of his gospel in a specific way to make a point to his original audience. Again, the point that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. So here's an example. We're a long way from chapter 21, um, but the reason why I mention it is because it's Palm Sunday. So in, in chapter 21, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. It's the passage that Gardner mentioned just a little bit ago. He's riding into Jerusalem. He's with his disciples. And the Bible says, Matthew does, before he gets to Jerusalem, he stops and he sends his disciples into the city to get a donkey for him to ride on. And if you're just reading through the gospel, you're like, weird, kind of cool, maybe not. And you keep moving, right? Um, But Matthew structures it this way because in verse four of Matthew 21, he says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes Zechariah 9, which is what Gardner read a prophecy about the Messiah King who would come from the line of David, written 500 years before Jesus rides into Jerusalem, finds its fulfillment. And so as Matthew says, he, came, he went to get a donkey or sent him to get a donkey, he goes, this is why. He's saying he's the king, right? Because again, he, he's declaring to the Jewish people, this is the guy that we've been waiting for for hundreds of years. The king who would one day come from David, he's saying it's not just another king in the line of David. He's saying this, he is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And so in chapter eight and nine, what Matthew does is he begins to demonstrate that this is who Jesus is. So he's saying he doesn't just check the boxes of the messianic prophecies. He doesn't just teach like one with authority like we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying he is the one with all authority. And so in this section, Matthew gives us 10 miracles to demonstrate for us that this is who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. And Bill covered three of those last week, the first three. And then there's another grouping of three. But before the, the next grouping of three, he gives us a warning, right? And so we're gonna cover the first two in the second grouping of three, which I know is incredibly confusing. You're welcome. Um, but what's interesting is he gives us this warning here. And we're gonna read it in a minute. But the warning are these two encounters that Jesus has with these two what I call would-be followers, Right? So he has this encounter in between these two miracles with these two would-be followers. And, and, and I think, again, Matthew is arranging this information in a specific way for a reason. I think the Holy Spirit of God ultimately inspires Matthew to write it this way because the point is, since this is who Jesus is, since he is the one with all authority over every square inch of creation, he requires a response. He requires a response. And so he shows us essentially how not to respond, Right? but it requires a response. And so the question I want us to consider together today, since that is true, is this. How how will you respond to Jesus? Really simple today. How will you respond to Jesus? So let me read our passage. I'm gonna read all of it, starting in verse 18 through the end of chapter eight, and then we'll spend some time talking about it. How will you respond to Jesus? 
Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. That's the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples came and said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me, leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he came to the other side to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herds of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went to the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. And the herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So, like we said earlier, Matthew has been declaring that Jesus is the one with all authority. And now he's demonstrating for us through these miracles that this is who Jesus is. So last week we saw three miracles that all had to do with showing us that Jesus has the power over disease, right? So three miracles. He healed a paralytic. He healed a leper. He healed Peter's mother-in-law who had a fever. The point is Jesus has power and authority over disease. And in what we just read, what we saw was not only does Jesus have power and authority over disease, he has power and authority over everything. Whether it's natural or supernatural, he has a power greater than the destructive forces of nature and he has a power greater than the destructive forces of evil and brokenness in the world. That's what Matthew's saying. And again, I think the point in this is he's saying, since that's who he is, the one with all authority, he requires a response. So how will you respond to Jesus? Let's look at this together. Verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Again, that's, they're on one side of the Sea of Galilee and he's saying, let's, let's move away. And this is the first way we see people respond to Jesus. The Bible says that there is a crowd around him, right? So if you have a different translation, it might say large crowd uh, or multitude. The idea is that people are excited about Jesus. So if you read the first part of chapter eight with these miracles, not only does he do those three, but people start bringing them everyone who's sick, demon-possessed, paralytics, everyone. He's bringing them to them and Jesus heals them all, right? So there's excitement about Jesus and this large crowd has gathered around him, only they're not necessarily excited about who he is. They're excited about what he can do. And so how does Jesus respond to the crowds? Look at verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he sets up a tent and starts taking donations. Starts a membership class. No. The Bible says when he saw the crowd, he gave orders that they would go to the other side of the sea to move away from the crowd. And that might seem insignificant, but this is a pattern in Jesus's life and in his ministry, particularly in the book of Matthew, that when a crowd forms, Jesus doesn't move toward it. He moves away from it, right? So the crowd comes to Jesus 
And Jesus tells his disciples, go get the boat ready because we're going to the other side. And so before they can get out on the water, uh, Matthew 8 says that there's these two guys that come up to them, right? So let's look at the first one, verse 19. A scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Right, so what do we know about this first guy? He's a scribe, all right? I know that was confusing. You're like, is this rhetorical? Is he actually asking us? No, he's a scribe. That's what we know. So the scribes in Israel were this group of religious leaders who had devoted their whole lives, right? The entirety of their lives to studying the Old Testament law, writing the Old Testament law, and teaching the Old Testament law, which in first century Judaism means these guys were a big deal, right? These guys were a big deal. And he comes up to Jesus and he makes this incredibly bold profession. He says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go, right? Incredibly bold uh, profession. And just imagine for a minute how the disciples must have felt. Like I love when I get the chance to teach is to just remind you, this is not a newspaper. Real people, real lives, this is what happened. Imagine how they would have felt, right? Because they're not scribes. They're not a big deal. They're tax collectors and fishermen, right? And, and they are, this is again, me reading into it, but they're on the other, they're listening to Jesus. They, they're blown away, excited, like the people going, can you believe it? We get to have this kind of access to him. Like he's leaving the crowds, but we're with him. And they, he says, get the boat, and we're getting the boat ready. And we're, you know, they're excited, like can't believe. And they're like, dude, can you believe it? And then here comes this scribe, this religious elite in their culture, and he says, he wants to follow Jesus. And what are they thinking? Uh-oh, we just got demoted, right? Because, um, The way that Jesus responds is not what they would expect. Let's look at it. Verse 19. Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. It's not what they were expecting. The the disciples weren't expecting this. The scribe was not expecting this, right? They they were expecting great because Jesus to say, um, we've been needing somebody like you on the team. That's what they would expect, right? But instead, basically Jesus responds with, are you sure? He says, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he says, are you sure? And if we're honest, this seems inconsistent with who we think Jesus is, right? It seems harsh and unloving because, um, well, in reality, Jesus says stuff like this all the time. People just don't post it on Instagram so you don't ever see it, right? But we think of Jesus like Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And I'm not dismissing that. That is one of the great promises of the scripture the eternal son of God says to you and me, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. It's just that, it's not just come to me. He has come to me and are you sure? He has come to me and as you do, make sure you know who you're coming to, right? Here's the point. Jesus is the one with all authority over every square inch of creation. He requires a response. But what this shows us is responding yes to Jesus is not just to believe and get excited about the things that he can do. It's an invitation to follow him, to actually follow him. Church, the life of the Christian is an invitation to embrace a life that is completely different than the life of the rest of the world. This is why in chapter seven, he calls it the narrow path. The narrow path that few find. It's not just believing something in a moment and then going on like everyone else. It's actually following Jesus. And so this scribe comes up and says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, 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 no. That's, that's not necessary. Don't go to all that trouble or all that commitment. Just say a prayer. Just believe and then maybe show up to church and give every once in a while. No, the guy says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, great, follow me. But, but first you need to know 
there's a cost. There is a cost to following Jesus. And this is what he means in verse 20 when he says that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He says, great, follow me. But just so you know, I'm actually just beginning a three-year camping trip that ends in me being murdered. Come on. You need to know the cost. And again, this guy seems to be like he's going all in, right? This expert in the law calls Jesus teacher. Seems to be a sign of respect. And I read in one commentary this week that this scribe calling Jesus teacher is adequate, but it is not accurate. It's technically right, but it lacks the reverence it needs to address the eternal son of God. He says teacher, it's adequate, not accurate. It's like if I come home after a day, haven't seen my kids all day, I leave early, I come home, and one of them runs up to me and says, Clint, how was your day? Like, what? Honestly, I'd be surprised because I'm like, you actually care enough how my day went? I would be surprised. But I'm your daddy. You don't call me Clint, right? I'm your dad. That's what's happening here. And based on Jesus' response, what's likely going on is this guy was looking for the next career opportunity, right? He's looking to move up in the world. And here's why. In this culture, young scribes would attach themselves to, to rabbis. They would find teachers who seemed like they got a good following going and they would attach themselves. And so there's these crowds forming around Jesus because of his teaching and his miracles. And this guy goes, it looks like the Jesus train's going somewhere. I wanna get on that. Right? He, he's looking for the, getting in on the ground level of the next big religious thing. And so Jesus warns him. And in, this, in Jesus' one verse response, he says two things we need to see here. The first thing he's saying is I'm not just a teacher. He says, I'm a Messiah. I'm rather, I'm the Messiah. Look how he responds in verse 20. You're like, there's no word Messiah in here. He says this, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but he says, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And in my Bible, hopefully in yours too, son of man is capitalized because it's a title. This is the, the favorite way Jesus refers to himself. It actually shows up 28 times in the gospel of Matthew. This is the first one. And when Jesus says son of man, he's not like being humble, although he is humble gentle and lowly of heart. He's not being humble here though. He's saying something that's true about himself. It's not like, oh, I could say son of God, but I'm saying son of man here just so you know that I identify with you. No, what he's doing is he's pointing back to this prophecy, this messianic prophecy in Daniel 7, which is this prophetic vision that Daniel has about the eternal son of God who will one day come and rule over everything and everyone, that he'll be given dominion from the God of the universe to rule and reign forever in charge of everything and everyone. And when Jesus says the son of man has nowhere to lay his head, he, what he's saying to this guy is, that's who I am. I'm the Messiah. I have authority over everything and everyone. And you can follow me if you want, but you need to know that I have that type of authority over everything, including you. So he says, I'm the son of man. The second thing he is, says to him here in this response is that following me will cost you upward mobility. Again, this guy is seeing this as an opportunity the Jesus train is going somewhere, and so I'm gonna get on that, right? Um, basically, he says this, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head, meaning following other teachers, it may bring you comfort in your life, it might net for you a, a claim, but if you follow me, you need to know that as the son of man, with authority over everything and everyone, I don't exist to promote your upward mobility. Jesus is saying, I don't exist to to bring you your life's goals and aspirations. It's the other way around, you exist for me. I am the son of man, right? So essentially what he's saying here is you need to count the cost. Jesus is saying, I came to give you life, but the life that I came to give you is gonna look completely different than what you thought, but so you need to count the cost. So if we can just be honest for a moment, 
How many of us actually count the costs of Christianity? Maybe a better question would be this. How many of us are, are tr- actively trying to live a costless Christianity? A way that follow Jesus that costs us absolutely nothing. If anything, it, it promotes our upward mobility. What we need to know is that Jesus is not a life coach that will allow you to reach all your life's goals and aspirations. He is the eternal son of God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who is worthy of every ounce of your affection and every ounce of your worship. So how will we respond to him? How many of us are trying to live a costless Christianity? Right, we want Christ to be sure, but no cross. We want the Holy Spirit, but we don't want to live holy. We want discipleship, we wanna be near him, we wanna follow after him, but we don't want discipline. Ultimately, what I'm saying is, we want God's kingdom to come as long as he leaves the little kingdom that we're building intact. Right, he invites us to follow him. He's saying it doesn't work that way. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He wants us to make sure we know what it will cost. So what's the cost? Let's look at the next one, verse 21. It says, another of the disciples, another of the guys with him said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead, right? So what's happening is this guy does a little better than the first guy. Because he didn't call him teacher, he calls him a Lord, okay? So there's these crowds of people following him. Jesus says, let's go to the other side. And these two guys come with him. And this guy says, Lord. Um, so he's coming, he's wanting to follow after him. Uh, but the way this reads is a little bit clunky, right? In Luke's gospel, it actually says that the follow me here in verse 22 comes before the guy's response, so essentially what, what's happening is these two guys come up and the scribe says, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And, and Jesus says, you sure? And then he looks to this other guy and says, what about you? How will you respond? And the guy responds with, Lord, essentially, I'll follow you, but let me first go bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, right? And again, th- this seems harsh. It seems unloving, inconsistent with how we think about Jesus. And, and if we can be honest, why would Jesus say that? Right, because pro- our problem with this response from Jesus is that we, we read ourselves into the story. So we read this and we picture, my dad just died. And, I'm, and I just gotta make all the arrangements and I'm grieving on top of that and I invite all these people to come and they're coming from out of town for the memorial service and then Jesus is there and he says, do you wanna follow me? And I said, of course, but give me a couple days to take care of this and then I'm in. That's how we read, ourse- read ourselves into the story. Um, but almost... Every commentary I read said that's not what's happening here, right? Because if Jesus said no to that, that seems unreasonable. But in Jewish culture, what's happening specifically in the first century is they had a legal requirement to honor their father and mother and a legal requirement for a son to bury their father. So if this man's father were dead or even about to die, he wouldn't be out in the streets where he even had a chance to encounter Jesus. He would be at home in mourning or taking care of his father, right? And if you don't believe me, Here's someone a lot smarter than me on these matters, a guy named David Stern, not the NBA commissioner, former NBA commissioner. I'm gonna work a quote in from him at some point, but not this one. This is a different David Stern, okay? This guy's a Messianic Jewish professor, meaning he's a Jewish man who believes that Jesus is the Messiah and he um, is a professor and he wrote a, a New Testament commentary. He says this about this passage right here, this verse. He says, don't suppose that this would-be Talmud, or which is Hebrew for disciple, is traveling around with Yeshua while his father's corpse is waiting at home. He says, the father's not dead yet. If he had been, the son would have been at home sitting Shiva, which is this formal period of mourning, 
And he, he describes this. This is the guy's motivation. He says, the, the, why, the reason why he responds to Jesus this way is the son wants to go home, live in comfort with his father till his death, perhaps years away, collect his inheritance, and then at his leisure become a disciple. So Jesus, his response to this guy is not harsh. It is a loving warning from the one who has all authority that that's not how it works. Jesus says, he, he requires a response from us because of who he is and what he's done. And what he's saying is, you, you, need, you re- require a response, but you don't get to say, yes, I will follow you, but first. That's not how it works. There's no room for but first when it comes to following Jesus. And the reason why is because if he is who he says he is, the one with all authority over every square inch of creation, if that's who he is, then we don't get to reorient, like shape our following of him to fit the rest of our lives. We change our lives to fit following him. That's what he's saying, right? Jesus is not interested in us finding a place for him and all the other things that we have going on. That's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What, what he's saying here is there is no room for but first. And so what is the cost of following Jesus? What we see here is the cost is committing to him completely. Completely. Allowing nothing, even something as important as even if it wasn't that this guy's dad was actually dead, even that would come first. There's no room for but first when it comes to following Jesus. And, and if I could just be real honest, preaching this text is really hard because I do this all the time. And so my guess is you do too. That we always have things that we give Jesus to, man, I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna follow him so faithfully. I'm gonna put nothing in front of him. I'm gonna make such a difference for the kingdom of God. But first... I need to get the business sustainable. I'm gonna follow Jesus, I'm gonna make a difference, but first, I need to retire, or but first, we need to get the kids out of the house, and then, I'm gonna follow Jesus so faithfully, but first, I wanna have some fun in college, or while I'm single, or, or whatever it is for you. But first. And so many of us, man, we keep delaying actually following Jesus until fill in the blank. And Jesus says, that is the life of those who are spiritually dead. That's what he means when he says, let the, let the dead bury their own dead. He's saying, that's the life. If you're trying to delay following Jesus, if you're giving me but first, that's the life of those who are spiritually dead. And when you do that, you are reorienting your life around the priorities of this world rather than the God who created it. And so Matthew is making the point that Jesus is the one with all authority and he requires a response from us And he takes these couple of verses to say, if we respond to him with yes, I will follow you, we need to make sure that we're willing to count the cost and then commit to him completely. Because here's the thing, Jesus is not inviting you into a costless Christianity. In fact, I would be willing to say that if your Christianity costs you nothing, you're not following the real Jesus. I know that's hard. If your Christianity costs you nothing, then you're not following the real Jesus. You might be following a version of him that you made up in your mind that has a lot of the same things as following Jesus. But the reason why I can say that so boldly is because Jesus tells us it's impossible. That a costless Christianity is not Christianity at all. He says this in Matthew 6, verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He says you cannot serve God and money. The point is that saying yes to following Jesus means that you are saying no to following anything or anyone else. And this is difficult 
Right? It is. And, and this is why Jesus calls it the narrow path. And he says, few find it. But he says, the narrow path is the one that leads to life. It is the only one. Jesus is the only source of the life that you actually want. And I know that's hard to believe because there's so many times in our lives where we come to a spot where we say, I know that God says go this way, but what I really want is this. How could this possibly be what brings me life? I'm telling you, Jesus is the only path that brings you to the life you want because it's the only path that leads to life at all. He says, wide is the way that leads in destruction. Easy. There's a cost to following Jesus. It is costly. But while there absolutely is a cost to following Jesus, the cost to not following him is greater. The cost to not following Jesus is greater. I, when I wrote that sentence, I thought of the, the quote by Jim Elliott. Some of you are probably familiar with him. He's a missionary in Ecuador. Um, and died in the 1950s. He actually died at the hands of those he was trying to evangelize. And he says this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The point is this, that there is coming a day where we will all stand before Jesus. And in that moment, when we stand before the eternal son of God in all his glory and all his majesty, that, in that day, none of our but first will matter. Right? In that moment, when we see Jesus face to face, none of those, God, I know you say go this way, but I really want this will matter at all. We'll know he deserves it all. A day where the apostle Paul says we'll know in full what now we only know in part. There's a cost associated with following Jesus, but let me promise you the cost to not following him is even greater. And I wanna show you this in the rest of the chapter. 26 minutes in, we're less than halfway through. You're like, we're never gonna make it, all right? I promise we will. Um, and these next two miracles, we could, I could preach a whole sermon on Jesus calming the storm, a whole sermon on this interaction, encounter with the demons, but we're gonna um, actually, I'm just gonna draw just a couple things from these miracles that show us the cost of following Jesus is, is costly, but the one to not following him is greater. And the reason why is because later in the book of Matthew, Jesus shows his authority and power over storms. He shows his authority and power over evil. Um, and so we'll dig into it deeper then, but, but we're gonna look through it, the lens this way. So let's look at verse 23. He says, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm and the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? So Matthew structures this this way for a reason, right? So he's connecting these narratives. So they were through the storm, now the storm, or, or they're on the side of the galley, going to the other side, and this storm jumps up. They get the boat ready, right? And they're out there. The Bible says, a great storm arose on the sea. And so remember, his, most of his disciples were fishermen, which means they were experienced sailors, right? And they're out there, and, but the Bible says, a great storm arose. So this word storm, it actually literally means earthquake, and then it's a great one of those, so a big one. So think like hurricane type winds. I don't know what level, it doesn't matter. It was terrifying, that's the point. And all the research I did said so they were in a boat anywhere from 25 to 28 feet long in the middle of a hurricane, open boat top. Not a, an easy situation, right? So my guess is the disciples starts raining, starts thundering, like shoot, looks bad, you know? But we got this, because they're experienced sailors. Jesus is napping, awesome. We'll just take care of it, he'll wake up, we'll be there, right? Um, but they do everything they can uh, for a little while and eventually it got to the point where they, they thought they were gonna lose their lives. 
It says the, the waves swamped the boat, right? So they were convinced this is the day we die. And so they wake Jesus up and they say, Lord, save us, we're perishing. But there's no way they think he can do anything about it, right? They, they're like, we're done. We're at the end of ourselves. We're experienced sailors. This is it. We're going. Last ditch effort. Lord, save us. We're perishing. The way that Mark tells the story, he gives us a different insight into it. He says, they wake Jesus up and they say, Lord, don't you care that we're dying? Don't you care that we are perishing? That's what uh, he says. So Mark's kind of pointing to the fact that they're appealing to the fact that Jesus is just allowing them to go through this and die. Uh, and what happens next, right? This is a familiar passage. Jesus wakes up. He asks them why they're afraid. And they're like, right? pretty clear. Like, this is why. Why are you afraid? Um, and then Jesus gets up and he tells the storm to stop. And it listens to him. At the end of verse 30, 26, rather, it says there was a great calm that came over the sea. So the same word used to describe the storm. There was a great storm. And then there was a great calm, which is the point is the storm was great, but Jesus is greater. He is the one with all authority over every square inch of creation to the point where even the wind and the sea obeys him. And so a lot of time when people preach this text, they make this connection. Jesus is calming the storm in the sea of Galilee and he can calm the storm in the seas of our lives, essentially. And so they'll make this point that the great promise of this text is that Jesus is the one who brings calm to those situations, right? The same way Mark says, Lord, do you not care that we're perishing? So you're not in a hurricane, but whatever in your life that causes you to feel like God doesn't care, that he would just leave you to allow those things to happen, people will preach this passage and say, Jesus can calm those storms. And he can. He absolutely has power over any storm in your life because he has power over this one, right? He has all power and authority. And in this passage specifically, he does calm the storm. But did you notice when the storm comes? Look at verse 23. When does the storm come? When he got into the boat, he, Jesus, his disciples followed him. And behold, Matthew wants you to see this. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. So the only reason they're in the storm in the first place is because they were following Jesus. Behold, look, now the storm is here. And, and let's not... Let's not sugarcoat this, right? This is a terrifying scene. It really is. Um, they're there stuck in the middle of this. They confuse Jesus as sleeping for him not caring about for them, but it's actually the opposite. But this is a terrifying scene. You're in a small boat in the middle of a hurricane. You've done everything you know to do to prevent your own death and still the waves keep coming. You're exhausted. You're going, we're going down. This is a horrible scene, but who's not afraid here? Who's not afraid? Jesus, Why? Because he's God. Because there isn't a single moment where he's in, in complete and total control. The great promise of this text, church, is not that God will calm every storm in your life. The great promise of this text is that the one with power and authority over it all is with you in the boat. He's with you. That's the great promise of this text. No matter what you're going through, no matter what in your life right now is causing you to feel like God doesn't care about you and when you look at him, he's asleep at best or absent at worst, no matter what's going on in your life, the great promise of this text is that Jesus is in the boat with you and he isn't worried because he is in complete and total control over it, right? right? There's a cost to following Jesus, but the cost to not following him is greater. Here's why. Because if you don't follow Jesus, it means that when the storm comes, when, when the waves are crashing in, you go, I'm going down. Without Jesus, you're alone. It's up to you and your own strength, your own power and authority to find a way to save yourself. 
to find a way to find something that makes you feel like you're mad or whatever it is. The great promise of this text is that Jesus is with you. And did you notice that Jesus slept through a hurricane, but he woke up at the cry of his disciples? Right? He slept through a hurricane, but he woke up at the cry of his disciples. Church, when it feels like God doesn't care, don't forget to cry out to Jesus. His, his being asleep is not evidence that he doesn't care about you. It's evidence that he is in complete and total control. And he's with you. Right? And notice how he stops the storm. There's no magic, no abracadabra, no expecto patronum, right? It's my only ever Harry Potter reference. The only one, Cody liked it. Probably the last one too, but none of that. Jesus just says, stop, stop. And the wind and the waves obey him immediately, the Bible says, immediately there was this great calm. And this is a sermon for a different day, but isn't it interesting that, that humans are the only ones in all creation who don't immediately obey Jesus, the wind and the waves, done. Demons, as we'll see in a second, sickness, disease, all of it. Whatever you say, Lord, they do it. But the human heart goes, I don't know. I might know more than him what's gonna satisfy me in the deep longings of my heart. Let's look at the last part, verse 28. When he came to the other side, right? So the storm's calm, they make it through. Again, what do you think the disciples think? <laughs> and they come to this other country, however you say that, two demon-possessed men meet him. Other gospel says run up to him. They come out of the tombs, it's a graveyard, so fierce that no one could pass that way. Behold, they cry out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance and the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and they went into the pigs and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea. They drowned in the waters and the herdsmen fled and running into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. I think I would probably tell that too when I ran in there. But um, this is one of those stories where if you're just kind of casually reading through your Bible, you go, it's kind of weird, yeah? <laughs> kind of cool, but kind of weird. Don't know how to apply it, just keep moving on, right? Um, what, you, what we learn, there's a lot we don't know about what's happening here, even, even though it's in all three synoptic gospels, but what you learn in this story and one of Jesus' miracles is that Jesus has complete authority over evil. Absolute authority over every bit of the evil and brokenness in the world. So he gets to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and then these two demon-possessed men run up to him and in the other gospels, Luke and Mark, we get a lot more details about what's happening here. So we see here these men live in the tombs, right? That's living in the graveyards. It says they run around naked. They're screaming out day and night, cutting themselves with sharp rocks so they're covered in their own blood and wounds. And they're screaming out day and night to the point where they don't sleep. They're so, Matthew says, they're so fierce, no one can go that way. That word fierce means um, so, uh, what does it say, violent. So extremely violent that no one could even go near them. And that to the point where some people even got enough folks where they were able to subdue the guys, chain them up, but they would break the chains and go right back to what they were doing. Again, a terrifying scene, right? But who's not afraid? Jesus, because he's God, because he has all authority. And, and um, the demons are afraid. They run up to him, oh, oh, they beg him, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Again, Jesus is not afraid because he has all authority. And we don't know why the pigs are there. Why, does, why do they beg to be sent into the pigs? Um, I read every commentary I could find, no one really knows, okay? But what we do know 
is when Jesus says in verse 32 to the demons, go, they listen. And this is the point of the passage, not what Jesus can do, but who he is. It's a Christological passage about who Jesus is and the power and the authority that he has over everything, natural or supernatural, including the most evil, broken things on the planet. Jesus says, go, and they respond, right? But how do the people in the town respond? Verse 33. This is where I want us to to end. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they tell everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men, and behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So they run out to meet Jesus and see, after hearing about how these men who everybody had given up on, hey, Jesus healed the the graveyard guys. You're kidding. And they run out to see him and and the, the Bible says they were afraid and they asked him to leave, which is weird. Mark gives us more, a better picture of what's happening. It says they come out to Jesus and they see the men who were demon-possessed. They're sitting at the feet of Jesus. They're in their right mind, he says, and they're clothed, which means Jesus doesn't just drive out their sin. He covers their shame, right, which is crazy. And, and there's a contrast here, what Matthew's trying to draw us to, right? Verse 34, and behold, behold, All the city comes out to meet Jesus and when they see him, they beg him to leave. So the contrast he wants us to see is they don't fall down and worship Jesus. They're not awestruck by him. They're afraid and they ask him to leave. The demons, when they run up to Jesus, they go, when they encounter Jesus' power, they say, we gotta go. But when the townspeople encounter Jesus' power, they say, Jesus, you need to go. And why do they respond this way? I think it's because when you encounter even a glimpse of the real Jesus, it changes things for you. It changes things for you, right? When you see his power and his authority, you know this is going to disrupt my life. Now, I belong to him. All of a sudden, I don't get to sit on the throne of my life and call the shots and say what's best for me and what's not best for me. I worship him, I follow him. When you encounter even a glimpse of the real Jesus, it changes things for you. Now, oftentimes when we're faced with this decision of whether or not it's worth it, like these men, it's gonna cost me, is following Jesus worth it? We know our lives aren't perfect, but at least we're the ones in charge. I know that my life's not perfect in every space, but I do a pretty good job as my own self-sovereign. What happens if I give up everything to follow Jesus, right? We decide, maybe Jesus is better if you just went somewhere else. And the town saw what Jesus did and they decided it would cost them too much. So they asked him to leave. It's a really devastating passage if you think about it. Because he does. We'll talk about this next week, but chapter nine says, get into the boat, he crossed over again. They ask him to leave and he does. There absolutely is a cost to following Jesus, but the cost to not following him is greater. And here's why, because he's the one with all authority over every square inch of creation, including the brokenness and evil in our lives. And when you say no to Jesus, what you're saying is, or even when you say, I'll follow you, but first, what you're saying is, I will rely on myself to cover my sin and shame. I will rely on my own power and authority to deal with evil and brokenness in the world. And man, if you look at this guy's life, broken beyond imagination, spiritually, 
physically, mentally, emotionally gone, living in the tombs, crying out, cutting his life. You couldn't imagine more brokenness to the point where even the people who used to love him and care for him and they tried everything they know to do, he's gone. And what happens? One encounter with Jesus, one word from the savior of the universe, go and his life is changed forever. This is who he is. He is the one with power and authority. He destroys the power of the enemy with the sound of his voice and he covers our shame with his love. One word from Jesus and this guy's life was changed forever. And so I wonder, have you ever felt too broken? You ever felt too dirty, too full of sin, too full of shame for Jesus? This story is proof for you. That's not true. All it takes is one word. And then there this guy is, restored, completely covered, clothed in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus. But the opposite of that is true as well. You cannot out the grace of God, but the opposite of that is true as well. And I think maybe this would kind of press on most of us. Have you ever felt like you know you're a sinner and you need Jesus, but you kind of got your life together? You know that you're a sinner and you need Jesus, but not as much as that guy. You're, you're not the graveyard guy, right? You know that you have a need for Jesus, but you're not like that guy. Well, this story is proof that anyone who's a Christian, this is your story. It's not just for the graveyard guys, right? This is for school teachers, electricians, high school students, CEOs, anywhere in between. This is all of our stories in Christ. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our sin, in our transgressions, but God. We were dead in our sins and our transgressions. I'm trying to get there. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all not just the graveyard guys who really need Jesus, every single one of us living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, underneath the power of the prince of the spirit of the air. That is the commentary of Matthew 8, is it not? The guy in the graveyard, spiritually broken, hopeless, completely to do anything to rectify his situation or to get him out of that space, but God. Jesus doesn't just cover our sin, he, he covers our shame, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace that you have been saved. And then here we are, dead, now alive, at the feet of Jesus, covered, clothed with him, given a new identity, beloved, co-heirs with Christ, belonging to God as sons and daughters, So the life of the disciple is not, Jesus, I will follow you, but first. It's I was dead, but God. I was dead, but God. It's I'm in. Lord, I believe that this is who you are. I believe that you are the one with all authority over every square inch of creation, and I believe that you're in the boat with me. And so when it feels like I'm drowning, I will cry out to you because I know you care, because I know that you're with me, because I know that you have power and authority over it. And when you say go, I will listen. Church, there's a cost to following Jesus, but the cost to not following him is even greater. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond 
in worship. If you would stand with me. Lord, we're thankful this morning for the truth of your word. Thank you that you don't leave us in our sin and our shame, but you come to meet us, that you have power and authority over it. I pray for the folks in this room, the men, the women, the children, even God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would allow this difficult passage to land on us where it needs to land. Convict our hearts where we're trying to live a costless Christianity, God. Help us to follow you the way that you had deserved, that we would not put anything before you, no but first in our life, Lord, that we would know that we were dead in our sins and transgressions and yet you made us alive in Christ. Help us to respond this morning appropriately to this good news. Thankful for Jesus, we pray this in his name, amen.